What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. We have a whole lot ahead of us today. Stocks are pulling back midday here, but only after hitting record highs again earlier. Will more stimulus keep the gains going into 2021, or is it no longer needed? Is it maybe even doing more harm than good? We'll debate that. And the profit and the CEO of Camping World, Marcus Limonis, joins us. We'll talk about the consumer, the new round of PPP support, and, of course, his streets of dreams. And Amazon scores with the NFL, a big investor goes after Intel. And the reviews were bad, but the downloads were great for HBO Max. It's all ahead in rapid fire today, but let's kick off with the markets and where we stand this hour. Bob Bassani has more on that for us. Hi, Bob. And Kelly, uh, happy, uh, happy Tuesday. Uh, quiet on the vaccine front, but a lot of talk on stimulus and whether or not that's going to change. Let's just take a look at the markets boards. Remember the Dow and the S&P were at new highs. The Russell's a little choppy here. It's down three days in a row. Keep an eye on that. Uh, cyclicals like industrial stocks, Caterpillar, uh, energy stocks have been weak mid-morning. Around 1220, we got some headlines out there. McConnell objects to Schumer's request that Senate approved $2,000 COVID-19 direct payments by unanimous consent. We probably lost about 10 points on the S&P on that headline, although we're coming off of the lows for the day. So stimulus is still matters uh, in the news. Take a look at the sectors. Banks, eh, modest gains for the month, but overall, you know, still down about 13% for the year. Energy's been in a downtrend for the last few weeks. That's the worst performer uh, on the S&P. It's probably down 35% for the year. Industrials have stopped going up for the last month or so. That's interesting. They were a big performer uh, September, October, mid-November. Not anymore. And of course, tech, the outstanding performer all year, up 40%. I want to remind everybody, the global markets have been rallying for the last several weeks. We're at new highs in Germany today. We're new highs in Taiwan. Uh, the Nikkei, a multi-decade high over in Japan. Small country emerging markets like uh, Vietnam, strong on the weak dollar. And even China, that's the CSI 300. That's like the S&P 500 of China. That's up 25% or so, so far this year. The big performers, though, very simple. It's tech. Semiconductors dominated virtually everything this year. They're in everything. That's why you can see the moves up, although they haven't been as strong in the last few days. But look at those moves up for those semiconductors. And, of course, the mega caps in 2020. What can you say? The top five companies in the S&P 500 have market caps, total market caps, all five of them, of about $20 trillion. I think uh, we're missing Facebook there on the bottom. There's Facebook, too. But Alphabet also is up 33%. And that's about, those five companies are about... 25% of the market cap of the S&P 500. Five out of 500 are about 25%. And when you wonder, why do we keep bringing up these stocks every single day? Is that the only thing? No, but it is what really matters and actually moves the broader indexes. Guys, back to you. Yeah, fair enough, Bob. We'll see you again in a few minutes. We appreciate it. Bob Bassani okay. there. Now, as the market weighs the possibility of even more fiscal stimulus coming once Joe Biden takes office as president, the prospect of more direct stimulus checks is causing some controversy and splitting the parties on the issue. Republican Senator Marco Rubio in favor of bigger household payments, although his party largely opposes them, while economists on the left, like Larry Summers, 
say these payments are a bad idea, even as the president-elect is pushing for them. Here to debate the merits, Bill Rogers is a professor at Rutgers University and the former chief economist at the Labor Department under President Clinton. And Peter Bookfar is chief investment officer at the Bleakley Advisory Group and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to you both. Bill, let me begin with you. Do you think $2,000 is too much? Uh, do you favor more direct checks in general, or do you think that this was not targeted enough uh, to those who are suffering directly from the pandemic? Yeah, I think that uh, the $600 is is just too is too small uh, that we need to be something closer to the $2,000. And the reason why, or a set of reasons why, is one, uh, families that are at or below $70,000 in income where who would get this full $600 uh, you know, this would only cover roughly uh, one month of, uh, of, of food um, and maybe a little bit more of a than a month uh, with regards to housing. And as our public health officials, Dr. Fauci and, other have said, Fauci and others have said, you know, we have a, a rough uh, a few months coming ahead. And so, uh, you know, something closer to 2000 will help these uh, families that, uh, will, you know, to get through the next few months. Before I turn to Peter, Bill, I just want to read you what Larry Summers has said. Again, this is somebody who usually is pushing for fiscal stimulus, has been pushing for it for years, but is not in favor of the $2,000 amount. He says, we already have seen household compensation almost back to pre-COVID levels. Checking balances as of October were higher than they were a year ago. For the lowest uh, quartile of earners, they were 25% higher. We have $1.6 trillion in excess savings, and $2,000 checks would put household income, at, broadly speaking, next year 15% above normal. I mean, as you know, that's, that's a huge aberration uh, so the, his point being, we're on our way back to normal in 2021 without these payments. Uh, he thinks they don't make sense from an economic point of view. What would you say about that? Yeah, well, having had um, Larry uh, for uh, macroeconomics uh, in graduate school, uh, you know, he's a very, very wise man and uh, worked with him uh, when I was at the Labor Department and his staff and have a great deal of respect for, for Larry. Um, but on this one, I think I do have to disagree that my economics is that uh, you know you, we went into this uh, pandemic recession with uh, income inequality at already at uh, all-time highs. Um, we cover, I cover, help uh, the United Way of Northern New Jersey. We cover a group we call Alice, where Alice stands for Asset Limited Income and Constrained and Employed, and these are basically the 38% of households in New, in New Jersey who uh, live at or below uh, what we would call the living wage. And you know, and, and they and uh, had tremendous difficulties at the beginning of the of the pandemic. Uh, you know, many of them couldn't pay that unexpected four hundred dollar uh, uh, bill that could come, and uh, right. and so. Uh, this so 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 the benefits of providing this additional stimulus. So I call it's really we're moving back not so stimulus, we're moving back to relief. That if you know if if my view would be right. different if we if we weren't facing the next few months of what Dr. Fauci and others have said we're going to be experiencing, which is going to put a and drag on, on economic growth. Peter, I'll bring you into this. I just want to point out that. Larry, Jason Furman, others, I mean, they're all in favor of extending unemployment benefits, certainly any targeted measures uh, that help the people that Bill's referring to who are directly affected by the pandemic. The concern is about a lot of the Americans who are going to get these checks uh, without that need necessarily. But what would, you, what would you say, Peter, about the whole scope of this debate, the direct checks and the prospect of more of, a, of another stimulus or relief bill, whatever you want to call it? Well, because it's going specifically to people that are already working, it's essentially a tax cut. 
the people that really need help are those that are not working and a lot of small businesses like local restaurants and dry cleaners and so on that have essentially been put out of business by local decision makers. So I would rather help those than, than necessarily helping. Now, I'm all for a tax cut. I'm all for more, keeping more money within the private sector. But if we're going to pick and choose here, we're giving this $2,000 is giving more money to people that are already working. I want to help people that are not, and again, those businesses. And I want to, I want to add just a broader thing here, because by add, going to $2,000 is going to add another $400 billion to this spending package. And I want to talk about the dollar, because this exploding budget deficit as a percent of GDP continues to depress the value of the dollar. So here, I'm holding up a dollar. Over the last four years, the value of this dollar is down 13%. So this dollar buys, the dollar is now pays 87 cents worth of what it would have bought. And if this continues, this kind of spending, that dollar depreciation is going to continue, which is inflationary, reduces the purchasing power of it. So while we can say money's cheap and let's just keep spending, 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 I think there are limits here to what we can do without causing some serious long-term damage in the value of this dollar and the inflation that this brings. All right. Well, that leads us right into our next discussion. We'll leave it there. And Peter, it looks a little crumpled. It looks like it's been sitting in your wallet for a while. Uh, Peter Bookbar, uh, Bill, we appreciate it very much, your time today, kind of fleshing out a little bit of the scope of this debate, Bill Rogers. The stimulus has certain given, certainly given a boost to stocks this year, but could it end up doing more harm than good in the long run? Like Peter said, uh, referencing the dollar. Well, we heard exactly this concern from Interactive Brokers Chairman Thomas Petterfee, who was on earlier today. Take a listen. Stimulus is certainly needed, but the problem is that that I don't see how the Fed is ever going to take this money back. And uh, so I, I'm worried about the, the dollar becoming worthless or certainly worth less than it is worth today. And on the long run, that should uh, obviously drive up the stock market because when the money is becoming worth less, uh, the stocks are nominally becoming worth more. So, so the stock market, I expect, is going to continue to rise in the, in the next two or three years to come. But uh, not, in, not uh, compared to maybe gold or Bitcoin or... or or uh, other measures of value. Yeah, gold, Bitcoin, uh, playing cards. Uh, Mark Smith is joining me now. He's vice president and portfolio manager at UBS Wealth Management. And Paul Christopher is head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. It's good to have you both here. Mark, I know that you've been a buyer of gold, um, but for quite some time now. So is this because you have you shared the concerns we just heard from Thomas Petrify or, or um, is there just is this just kind of general portfolio hedge for you? I think you should have more gold than than ever in, a, in an economy that is based upon stimulus. Um, if you can't have positive economic growth without a one trillion dollar deal getting passed in Congress, then we have serious problems. And so until that changes, we, re, we remained uh, bullish on gold because of that fact. Okay. So, Paul, let me bring you in as well. I mean, from a traditional portfolio kind of asset allocation point of view, I mean, listen, a lot of people will say, ah, I live in the U.S., 
stocks are priced in dollars? Do I really have to worry about the, the low value of the dollar? I mean, you, we experience it in a lot of different ways as costs run up from the things that we import or, you know, we have less purchasing power for things like gold or yes, even Bitcoin or, you know, any other commodity or, or anything that's priced in dollars. So, Paul, do you think it actually means that the stock market gains that we're seeing are not quite as valid because they're kind of the flip side of this weak dollar coin? Well, you'll always find some portions of your portfolio that are doing a little bit better than others. And, and certainly there are still companies that are making good profits and there's productivity growth in this country. We still see a good future in U.S. equity. So we wouldn't we wouldn't be changing that. But we we would agree with Mark that that there is prospect for gold to do better. And so we added it. To, we were favorable on commodities back in March and and do recommend a two to four percent commodity allocation, depending upon the the investor's potential or particular risk tolerance. So, yes, we do believe in stocks. Yes, we do believe the, in the U.S. economy. But we also think that part of that broad portfolio should include some gold at this point. I mean, Mark, at what point do we so I'm curious as well where you would be in the market, because a lot of people who are worried about this dynamic, even a little bit would say, you know, that's why you want to be in things like industrials, materials, maybe financials, um, if this is kind of a best case scenario. Worst case scenario, we start talking about inflation, maybe the market multiple comes down and that sort of thing. So I, I am curious, um, given what you said about your concerns with gold, where that leaves you on what else you should have exposure to. Yeah, you definitely have to have a diversified portfolio. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we're having an over allocation to the gold space. But Going into 2021, you got to own health care. If what's going to get us out of this pandemic is a vaccine, how do you not own, own health care stocks? It baffles me that folks still don't own some of these companies that are going to get us out of this issue. So you got to own health care. Industrials, although it's, it's kind of um, flat right now for the month, I think that all, if you look at the emerging markets, you look at China, they're doing unprecedented spending. And so it's, it, I think that there is a lot of opportunity in that sector uh, for 2021. And then... If this vaccine does work and we start doing a good job at it, and people start going back to normal. You got to have this uh, consumer discretionary. Those airlines, those cruises, um, all those um, go, go back to normal. Stocks are going to continue to do well, and so that's what 2021 is. If this vaccine is effective, and if it can get into the arms of people around the country. All right, and Paul. Before we go, let's just bring this back full circle. Then, I mean. What do you think happens to the dollar here? What do you think happens to inflation and bond yields? Uh, you know, is the market too complacent? Well, probably for the longer term, but that's likely to be several years away. In the meantime, growth is what matters. And if we can get economic support and relief to help support spending and growth in this country, that should drive earnings. We do have a, a, a $175 EPS target, earnings per share, on the S&P 500 for the end of next year. That's a pretty good number, we think, and a really good reason to hold stocks. We would agree to hold consumer discretionary. We would also agree with Mark on health care and would add a materials just in case we see further growth in 2021. But we also want to play the technology trends that we think have accelerated over the last year. So we think that sort of split, that sort of division gives people a good, investors a good division or a good way to play both growth uh, and some of the trends that are still going to be with us for a while from the pandemic. All right. 
We will leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you both, Paul Christopher and Mark Smith. For even more market commentary, including a warning for small caps from MKM Partners, head over to cnbc.com pro. Coming up, we're going to speak with entrepreneur and CEO Marcus Limonis about the state of small business, the consumer, and his new streets of dreams. Plus, two big wins for streaming. Amazon scoring with its NFL game and HBO Max seeing some love from Wonder Woman, even though the reviews haven't been that great. Those stories are both ahead. Stay with us here on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. How much does this weigh? Just over two pounds. You want to try on one more? Oh, good. All right, so walk me through what you do. I create artwork. Is that what you call this? Yeah. How much is that necklace? $150,000. People walk in and buy this kind of stuff? Yeah, all day long. Where are these people coming from? I deal mostly with athletes, uh, all types of different celebrities, influencers. They just wire you the money and move on. There's terms and conditions, oh, sometimes for a shout out. You get a little you know, discount. discount and, uh, you know, social media and changed how? a lot for me. And there you have it. That was a taste of Streets of Dreams with Marcus Lemonis premiering tonight on CNBC. Throughout the series, it's Marcus exploring iconic uh, centers of commerce and culture across the country. So Manhattan's Diamond District, but also Denver Green Mile. He meets entrepreneurs behind all of these local industries. And he joins us now to talk about Streets of Dreams, the state of small business overall, and much more. Marcus, it's good to see you. Your stock up 90% this year, we should mention, over at Camping World. Uh, so, so much to, uh, to discuss. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. I just want to know where your gold chains are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning a lot lately about the pricing of gold. And, it, you know, it is kind of, by the way, this is a total side note, but, you know, all of the stuff with gold and diamonds, like, you see people piling into Bitcoin and buying Pokemon, like, anything they can get their hands on right now. Do you, is there a sense that people are kind of like everything's going up in value and we're worried about the dollar? And I don't know what do you get any of that sense at all? Or is that is that sort of like a side issue? Well, I don't think it's a side issue. I think there's a lot of confusion around what things are really worth. And you'll see tonight when we go into the diamond district to try to understand what a diamond's worth. It's still pretty vague to a lot of people. And I think understanding how these economies and these industries move uh, the diamond industry has been terribly hurt in 2020, as you would imagine, right? People aren't spending money on things like that. They're spending money on things like campers. Uh, and so we're dealing in a different time right now. And we wanted to go out and show people how we can pull back the curtain on different industries, whether it's the diamond business or uh, we go down to Miami and South Florida and we'll visit a lot of different cities. And I think people enjoy understanding what happens behind the curtain. Yeah. Well, one more question in this vein while I'm thinking about it. You're kind of a high net worth individual. Have you ever thought about buying or do you own Bitcoin, Marcus? I mean, is that something that, that you know, that, do you have like a financial advisor who says to you, you know, oh, you got to think about getting in or, or again, do you just kind of keep an eye on it like everybody else? 
I am still fascinated by this whole idea behind Bitcoin, and I don't ever like to question people's thought process behind it, but I'm into good old-fashioned cash. And so in my financial advisor, which I don't have one, by the way, but if my financial advisor told me to get into this, I would say, well, <laughs> is it better than cash? Is it going to give me a higher yield? And it looks like in certain sectors, the answer is yes, but I'm, I'm still scared of it. Now, Mark Cuban and I were trading some tweets yesterday about it. Uh, and I tried to just stay away from it. It's too complicated for me. Well, I take your point that the profit doesn't need a financial advisor. You, you are the financial advisor. What do you think about um, what we've just passed again? I mean, we've talked a lot about the need for areas like restaurants of direct aid, but the restaurant uh, specific aid bill was not in this COVID package. The direct checks were. We were just debating whether that's the right way uh, to support the economy or if it should be something that's more targeted. Um, PPP at least kind of achieves some of that. Um, but is this all going to help and, and help? How much do you think? You know, I love having this debate with people because I'm a capitalist at heart. And what we do at CNBC, as you know, Kelly, is we promote capitalism. And this idea that this government money is a form of socialism is kind of nonsense to me. And part of the reason that it is, is that in a normal time, if people weren't making and their business wasn't surviving, I get it. Let them die. But in this particular case, where they've been inflicted with pain that they have no control of, we got to solve the problem for them. And you look at the waterfall of businesses that have been affected, and clearly restaurants are right there at the top of the chart. And we, you know, we started a fund a little while ago, put five hundred thousand dollars in to go directly towards businesses, and then we put another five hundred thousand in, and we can keep putting money in. But if the government, local, state, and federal don't start acting like this is a problem. We're going to have a bigger problem. That's the commercial real estate market and the trade payables that are about to get cooked. And that collateral damage will be insurmountable on the real estate side. How do we best avoid that then? You know, as somebody who's on the front lines of business across multiple yeah. different industries, you meet with so many different entrepreneurs who are hit in so many different ways we can't even imagine by what's going on with the economy this year. What's the best way to do targeted true relief and avoid that outcome? Look, I, I'm never a fan of raising the national debt, but I also am a fan of trying to figure out how to stop the bleeding right now. And if we have to come up with an alternative method in years forward to claw some of that money back, that's fine. But let's remind everybody that the money that's going to go out into the marketplace from the federal bill is going to go into the economy. It's going to go into people's bank accounts. And it's going to actually get spread through commerce, create profits, create jobs, do a bunch of other things. I think if we don't do something quicker and maybe even deeper, particularly with restaurants and salons and gyms and, and towns and cities, for example, we're going to have a problem that I think we have never really thought about. And if you go back to 2008 and 2009, when the bubble happened on the commercial real estate side and then the banking side and the loan side, this thing could be much more catastrophic because unemployment will come with it with a much bigger wave. And so my advice to everybody right now is you pile in as much money as you possibly can into these local main streets, into these local economies to get the air back in the balloon. And then if those folks can't figure out how to survive after that, then, you know, we, we, we can't help everybody all the time. Right. Interesting. Interesting. It's kind of getting, you know, like you said, kind of getting as much in there right now. I know you're busy guy, Marcus, helping out with the Nashville uh, relief effort and so much more. We appreciate you taking the time today. Looking forward to the new show. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kelly. Happy New Year. Mar
you too. Marcus Lemonis is the prophet, and his new series, Street of Dreams, premieres tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern Time and Pacific, and that's right here on CNBC. Still ahead, masks, social distancing, hand washing, now vaccines. It's all part of the battle against the spread of COVID. One company is hoping you can soon add air purifiers to that list. We're going to talk about that coming up. And it's been a volatile 24 hours for one recent IPO as its lockup period expires. We'll reveal the name of this mystery chart and track its double-digit move next on The Exchange. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow is up 184 points at the highs. That's when we were in record territory for all the major averages. But we've turned lower with the Dow down a quarter point uh, percent right now. Same with the Nasdaq. S&P is a little bit better than that. Healthcare leading the way today. Energy is lagging by about 1%, but it's kind of a mixed bag across the sectors. Here's a mover we're watching this hour. Shares of the online insurance company Lemonade are higher with 44 million shares becoming eligible for sale today. It's that lockup period expiring from the IPO. The stock has been down significantly in anticipation of this event. It was down double digits yesterday, uh, so a little bit of a relief rally up 7% today. Let's get to Morgan Brennan now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Kelly. So I'm Morgan Brennan. Here's what's happening this hour. In Columbus, Ohio, an officer on the scene of the fatal shooting of Andre Hill said she saw no threats by Hill prior to a shooting by Officer Adam Coy. The city of Columbus has fired Coy, accusing him of incompetence and gross neglect of duty. The Department of Transportation will reportedly announce technology meant to stop train derailments is in operation on more than 50,000 miles of tracks. Congress had mandated the safety systems be in place by the end of this year. That's positive train control. In Croatia, soldiers helping evacuate a nursing home after this morning's earthquake. The death toll has risen to five 30 miles away in neighboring Slovenia, lawmakers fled the country's parliament building as they too felt the quake. And on a happier note, back here in New York City, New Year's Eve preparations continue in Times Square with a confetti test from atop the Hard Rock Cafe's marquee. One ton of confetti will be released when the ball drops to bring in the new year, but no one will be there to have it fall on them. Kelly... That's very disappointing. Although if you've ever been at Times Square for New Year's, you realize that it's actually a more enjoyable experience to watch it on TV rather than to actually be standing It's just going to be eerie to see that ball fall in the the middle of nowhere, don't you think? It just feels like the way you would expect 2020 to be capped off. I agree with the whimper. Up from here. Thank you so much. 
We, uh, we appreciate it, Morgan Brennan. Coming up, the average return for this year's IPOs is 48%. That's double the Russell 2000. What's driving this huge demand in a year that had this incredibly unpredictable economy? We'll dig into that. Plus, hoping to give sales a jolt, coffee chains are reimagining the future of their business. And for names like Starbucks, it's already paying off. That story's ahead, and Intel responding to Third Point's latest criticism. We have those developments just within the past hour or so. Next, don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Leslie Picker, Bob Bassani, and Deirdre Bosa. Welcome to everybody. First up, 2020 was one for the record books, including for the IPO market. Despite a lull in the first half, $170 billion has been raised this year, the most ever, rivaling the height of the dot-com bubble when adjusted for inflation. Leslie, why the appeal this year in particular? And what's remarkable about those statistics, which include both operating companies and SPACs, uh, I should add, uh, is the fact that there was basically no activity in the first half of the year. The activity really started ramping up in earnest in June. And so when you think about it, we're really looking at basically a half a year amount of activity that has surpassed uh, so many decades worth of activity that we've seen in years by any other measure. In 14, we had Alibaba's IPO. Uh, We've had some large IPOs. In between then and still in this year, in this pandemic year, we have $170 billion worth. Now, a huge driver is the fact that we've seen such a just remarkable surge in SPACs this year. About half of that $170 billion encompasses just basically blank check vehicles that were raised to fund acquisitions in the future. And the rest of it is operating companies like Snowflake, DoorDash, Airbnb are, are, are three of the biggest ones that we've seen this year. Uh, what's driven that surge uh, was your question. It's this idea that we've seen just a huge rise in the equity markets, mar- which help mark up the valuations that companies can get by going public. There's pretty muted volatility, and so that helps with the pricing dynamic as well. And then just as you mentioned before, there's this insatiable appetite for listings right now. The average performance yeah. is almost 50%. And so when Wall Street's happy, the companies are happy, you know, you're just going to see more of these in the future. That's a list of upcoming IPOs that are in the pipeline for 2021. Bob, what would you add? I mean, again, this is now, like Leslie said, usually kind of flows follow performance or or so to speak. So should we expect that next year's even bigger or are these things going to come back down to earth? Well, look what's going on here. What's happened this year is that the overall value of technology stocks and biotechnology stocks has increased. COVID has made this even more valuable. And if you look at the offerings, it's very heavy on biotech and technology stocks. So that's a major factor. The answer to your question is, it is continuing into 2020. You look at some of the stuff, just in January, these billion-dollar IPOs, Qualtrics is, is ready. That, that's the spinoff of the SAP. Uh, Playtica, the casino mobile games, Affirm, it's a buy now, pay later online platform. Uh, Roblox, uh, online video game developers. Uh, Petco Health, the, the pet care retailer. This is all in January. Now remember, and, and Leslie's, point here is the, the comeback uh, in the economy. If, if things go south, th- none of this is going to happen. 
But as of now, I think it's fantastic that we have three outlets now. We have the IPO, the operating company. Uh, we have SPACs. Uh, and, of course, we have direct listings, which are now able to raise capital, at least on the New York Stock Exchange. I think it's going to be terrific. Yeah, and I, I'm most impressed by the fact that Renaissance IPO ETF, they don't even get allocations, obviously, of the IPO before it goes public. Wouldn't that be nice? They're just coming in like several trading days later, and they're still up, you know, double this year, 48% on average. I mean, it's really something else. All right, let's move along. Talk about what a touchdown it's been for Amazon with this NFL game last week. Saturday's matchup between the San Francisco 49ers and the Arizona Cardinals, the first to air only on streaming, and now the ratings are in. And guess what? The streamed game drew an average audience. So this is apples to apples, about 4.8 million viewers. The four NFL network games averaged around five and a half million. Now, some viewers complained that the streaming feed was glitchy or that they simply didn't have access, which to me, Deirdre, seems like it's still a huge issue. I mean, I can barely figure out how to get Amazon on my TV. Um, it, you know, is this is this a, a preview of what's to come? Are we going to have to routinely find NFL games, especially when they add a game next fall on our streaming devices? Well, I think it's only a matter of time, but how quickly that happened or doesn't happen, that's certainly up for debate. And I think what you saw from this first streaming-only game is that it's not going to happen overnight. You mentioned, Kelly, that some people were complaining the Twitterverse was <laughs> all up in arms because some people could not get their crystal clear football. There was issues streaming it. And that's really important for sports fans. And that's sort of why sports, live sports, has sort of been the last holdout, why folks are still keeping um, their cords, right? They're not cutting cords completely, largely because of live sports. So um, the fact that there were some issues that still need to be ironed out means it's not going to happen overnight. But the fact that, like you said, viewers streamed more than 800 million minutes during the game, that's incredible. Um, that figure would put it in the contest for Nielsen's streaming top 10 most weeks. And this was the only, only the first one. We're certainly heading in this direction. How quickly does it happen when um, ESPN's current contract for Monday Night Football comes up next year, perhaps not that quickly, uh, but of course, something that we continue to watch. Yeah, Bob, I, I think we're going to be watching this about more and more the, on these other platforms. Right. Go ahead. Exactly. Exactly. That's the point here. This is much ado about nothing. All of this. Oh, I got spotty on my my Twitter. Uh, Amazon's a player. Amazon competes against the networks. Amazon is a major competitor in the movie business. Do you think it's not going to be a major competitor in the sports business? You've got to be kidding me. All right, it's unfortunate their Twitter fluttered a little bit. That's going to go away. They're going to get better at figuring that out. But if you think Amazon, uh, you know, suddenly uh, is not going to be a major player, they are. So everybody get used to it. Well, the question is how long, Does it Bob? Bother I mean, you it's not a magic bullet. We've overloaded him. We'll Go ahead. just move along. We'll come back to him in a second. <laughs> we were talking about I, how big was, these things are for movies uh, as well. No, you're fine. Hold, hold your thought. Uh, a pair of holiday movie releases did lead to a downloading bonanza for two streaming giants. We got new data from HBO Max that they set a single-day record for app downloads after the release of Wonder Woman 1984. More than 240,000 people downloaded HBO Max on Sunday as a result. Rival Disney Plus saw its holiday weekend download Surged 28% compared to last year as it released Soul, that's a Pixar movie, 
Warner Media, of course, has been slammed by a lot of people in Hollywood for releasing these films straight to HBO Max. But guys, it seems like they're getting exactly what they want here. Leslie, if this look at Disney's valuation because of streaming, if HBO Max needs to succeed and it does, then maybe this gamble is worth it. So I was thinking, you know, because so many people are like, I've saved all this money in 2020. And I'm like, yeah, me too. And then I go back and I remember all of the different streaming services that I subscribe to and realize that actually I haven't saved any money in 2020 because it's all just been redeployed into subscribing to absolutely everything that can help me occupy my free time. So uh, I did watch <laughs> Wonder Woman. Uh, you know, I was one of the people who watched that. I, I have soul on my top list of movies to watch because I've heard really good things about it. Um, but I think, you know, people aren't traveling for the holidays. They aren't maybe getting together with family that they otherwise would be. They aren't going to the mall, you know, to see Santa or doing other things. And so, you know, this is what people are using to occupy their time. And especially during the holiday season where people are used to having other traditions, they're supplanting them with things like watching movies at home, uh, which, you know, that, that's just 2020 for you. Yeah, Bob, we'll give you the last one. I agree. Word. I, I, I need an app to watch my apps. I literally don't know <laughs> how much money I'm spending. I'm like <laughs> Leslie. I'm literally lost. I could not tell you. I really do need an app to tell me. I think there are apps to tell you there how are. much you're spending on your apps. Yeah. But, but I'm lost. I, I, I mean, it's unimaginably amounts of money. Yeah, same. We've got to get Bob <laughs> into his Someone on Twitter, settings. hook Bob up. I know. And I want those results, Bob, the next time you're on Rapid Fire. I mean, I, give us a little personal disclosure here. I want to know if it's over, like, what do we think, $200 I don't even want to know. It's got to be some, oh, for, something like that. Oh, are you kidding like me? That. That's minor league. Uh, finally. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this is a big news story the last couple of hours. We've talked a lot about Intel's struggles this year. Well, now an activist investor is going after them. They're, uh, look at the shares popping, uh, actually having their best day since April after Daniel Loeb's third point sent the chip maker a very strongly worded letter urging them to explore new options. Four and a half percent gain for Intel, Leslie. Um, I, I, what choice is this going to leave them, really? Uh, but to, I mean, I'm sure investors who are still in the stock are probably saying, thank you, you know, please, let's figure something out here. Yeah, so here's what's really interesting, and, and, and we really haven't seen much in the way of major proxy fights in 2020. There have been, you know, one or two smaller ones, but this is one that we will definitely be watching uh, if it does turn into a proxy fight. Third Point says uh, that they are considering putting up nominees uh, for election to the board in 2021 uh, at the annual meeting. Uh, and so they have, as you mentioned, written this pretty strongly worded letter uh, to Intel pointing out areas that, uh, you know, they may have kind of fallen short, such as, you know, their their share relative to competitors, their ability to retain customers, their ability to retain talent, all of these issues highlighted in Third Point's letter, while, of course, noting uh, underperformance relative to peers over, uh, you know, one, three, five-year time horizons. Intel actually responding in a statement today. They say that they welcome input from all investors uh, regarding enhanced shareholder value in that spirit. They look forward to engaging with Third Point on their ideas toward that goal. Now, what's interesting, and I would say what's one thing that's worth following, uh, is that Intel notes that considering these and other challenges, they want Intel's board to retain a, an investment advisor to evaluate strategic alternatives that include whether Intel should remain an integrated device manufacturer and potentially divest 
some of their, quote, failed acquisitions. So uh, this is a big development in the world of activism. This is a big development for Intel. Worth noting, yeah. Reuters reported they have about a billion-dollar stake. That's about 0.5% yeah. of Intel right now. So yeah. they would need support from some other shareholders uh, if they do indeed pursue the proxy fight option. Pisani, wrap this you know, up. You know, most of the time, well, quickly, I'll just say, uh, Deirdre, uh, I want to get to you, but most of the time, activists are fluttering their wings over nothing. But Loeb really does have a point. The average semiconductor is up 18%. Intel's down 18% this year. The last two earnings reports have been disastrous for the company. So I, I think mm -hmm. he brings up some very valid points. Deirdre, you're going to say something. Go ahead. And yeah, just Go the last ahead, thing Deirdre, I would say yeah. is I'm surprised there's not I'm surprised there's not more tension on the CEO, Bob Swan. I think one of the biggest issues for the company has been that he is not an engineer. He is a finance guy. Um, and that has sort of hurt them in terms of retaining talent, something that Loeb identified. And I think the stakes are just so high here. Intel has been one of the greatest manufacturers that the country has seen. There's national strategic sort of importance here. So I think at the very least, yep. um, shareholders are at least glad and probably, you know, our defense, our security officials are probably glad that something's happening. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. We'll leave it there, guys. Deirdre Bosa, Bob Bassani, Leslie Picker for this edition of Rapid Fire. Still ahead, we all know COVID is an airborne disease, but coming up, we're going to meet the CEO of a company that makes its business getting COVID out of the air. That's right after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Now with the distribution of the COVID vaccine underway, the next challenge becomes how to make people feel more comfortable with returning to offices and other places. It's where air purifiers could come into play. And the reason why my next guest is seeking emergency approval from the FDA to help fight the pandemic. For more, I'm joined by Joe Urso. He's the chairman and CEO of Active Pure Technologies. Joe, welcome. And what do you need FDA approval for specifically? Thanks, Kelly. Well, FDA approval is very important because that clearance gives the assurances to people that you're bringing medical-grade protection to everyday places like businesses and schools and homes. And in fact, Kelly, we already have it with our Aris Medical Guardian, where we, we demonstrated enormous kill rates against RNA viruses and other pathogens. And we're now bringing it to the FDA to approve us for our specific tests on the SARS-CoV-2 virus, both in the air and on surfaces. I'm reading your client list already is impressive, if it includes the Cleveland Clinic, uh, MLB, you know, uh, universities, Mississippi State, uh, state capitol buildings. So it would seem like words getting around regardless, right? Well, it is, it is slowly, but I, I'd say we're just scratching the surface on it. Um, and there's a lot more work to do to try to help people get back to life as we know it. What specifically does your air filter do? So for those of us who are concerned about going back into a restaurant, is it the kind of peace of mind where I say, okay, well, I'm okay going into a restaurant that has an air purifier in it, but I'm not with one that doesn't, for example. Um, you know, is it, is it that kind of kind of get out of jail free card or does it not quite, you know, make things perfectly safe? I'm sure nothing can. Well, let's say this, it complements other solutions in, but in a material way. We recently got our test results back from the University of Texas Medical Lab where we killed 99.9 percent, more than that actually, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that was nebulized at over 10 million particles per milliliter. We killed them in just three minutes. And that kind of protection, that kind of real-time protection that basically attacks the virus at its source, literally as it's coming out of your mouth, 
creates an enormous safety net. And, and while nothing's perfect, you know, God help you if someone should cough in your face um, or something like that, mm-hmm. it could be problematic, but it would make a material difference in giving peace of mind to help, help businesses reopen. But do you think if this were widely deployed, that would actually go a long way towards getting us back to normal, no matter what's happening with uh, vaccines and so forth? Well, I do. I really do. And I think what we're seeing, Kelly, right now and working with government agencies and and other uh, major businesses is that this type of solution has become almost an expected uh, level of protection for patrons and uh, and their employees. So I I do believe that this, this technology will, in fact, become ubiquitous over time as people become more aware of, as we are now, of the risks that we have from airborne pathogenic diseases. I know, I'm thinking, you know what, maybe we should get one in our house. <laughs> Look at <on> the website. <laughs> Joe, thanks for joining us uh, to explain it. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Kelly. Joe Orso. The pandemic also giving both Starbucks and Dunkin' a caffeine boost, speeding along changes the restaurants are planning to make in the future. We're going to look at what that means for your cup of joe and your coffee drinking experience in 2021. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app anytime. We're back in a couple. Coffee chains, like many retailers, have had to shutter tons of locations this year because of the pandemic. But the ones that can stay open are giving us a glimpse into the future. Kate Rogers joins me now with a closer look. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, consumer routines like grabbing that cup of coffee on your way into work in the morning, of course, have been disrupted by the pandemic. And major chains are taking note of that and tweaking their store formats in response. On its most recent earnings call, Starbucks said that it would be closing 800 locations across the Americas in 2021. But it's also opening up 850 new locations in varying formats next year, including Starbucks pickup stores, those with curbside options and those with drive throughs In fact, at its investor day, it said new store formats, including pickup and drive throughs would expand to nearly 45 percent of its U.S. portfolio by 2023, up almost 10 percent from its mix today. Business is also bouncing back faster than expected and new trends like stores in the suburbs with drive throughs in particular are seeing a boost. Duncan also announced up to 800 unprofitable store closures in 2020. More than half of them are located in Speedway gas stations. But Duncan, too, has been working on a next-gen store pre-pandemic, catering to on-the-go preferences. The closures would free up franchisees to then invest in those next-gen concepts that are more profitable, like stores with drive throughs Duncan has about 800 of those locations across the United States today. And while consumers may not be going in every morning, when they do go into Dunkin' and Starbucks, they're tending to spend a bit more money, order, order larger group orders, and also, Kelly, kind of treat themselves to things that they can't necessarily replicate at home, like a nice fancy latte or an ice beverage. But, Kate, once we can go back to normal, won't people want to hang out again? What if they're making too many changes to react to 2020? Well, Kevin Johnson addressed that issue uh, at Investor Day and the next day on our air saying that they are confident, you know, that once a vaccine rolls out, people will be longing for that social interaction, that connection coming to the third place, as Starbucks has called it. And there will still be cafes with seating and people want to, you know, get together and enjoy that cup of coffee. So that's why they're going to have a mix of those stores moving forward. All right. I didn't think they would get rid of it altogether. Uh, You know, I I just want to go somewhere and sit in the peace and quiet and smell smell the coffee beans all around me, surrounded by other people. 
in real life. Yep. Uh, Kate, thank you very much. Our Kate Rogers. Thank you. Before we go, take a quick look at shares of Moderna. They're among the top performers in the NASDAQ today, up about 2.5%. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to speak exclusively with the company's chairman in his first interview since the rollout of their COVID-19 vaccine. Don't miss it. That does it for us today. But up next on Power Lunch, Houston Rockets owner and Landry's founder, Tillman Fertitta, joins us to discuss the state of his businesses as COVID surges across the country. Also react to the latest round of stimulus. I'll see you on the other side of this break with Brian Sullivan. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.